to Page It to the Limit, a podcast where we explore what it takes to run software in production successfully. We cover leading practices used in the software industry to improve both system reliability and the lives of the people supporting those systems. I'm your host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. I'm joined today by Jay Gordon from Microsoft, who's also the host of the popular On Call Nightmares podcast. And that's exactly what we're going to talk about today, On Call Nightmares. So thanks for joining me, Jay. No problem, Matt. You know, it's a little bit before the end of the, what I would call working year for a lot of us. Like it's December 23 while we're recording this. And the cool thing about it is, is I got some time to kind of chit chat with you. Yeah, so I think we kind of get started. Maybe if you could tell our listeners a little bit about your journey. Your show, On Call Nightmares, just turned a year old. You've been doing this throughout 2019. Just at a high level, tell us about some of the stuff. What's the purpose of your show and what's the topic? And then we'll pivot that into talking about some actual On Call Nightmares. Sure. Around this time last year, I got to this point where I really thought that I was hearing a lot of people tell me, like war stories, when I would go to places, like go to DevOps days, go to other conferences, hang around at the bar after, war stories became something that I just got so used to hearing and telling. And so it got to the point where I started thinking, you know, all these conversations we have at the bar, why is no one recording them? And so I decided I was going to start recording them. And I did so, I guess it's been now uh, 45 or 46 times. I've done a lot of them. I've spoken to people that have really helped change my thoughts about on-call. And I've spoken to people that have also maybe reinforced some things that I thought were right about on-call. What do you think are some of the popular myths or misconceptions about on-call that you see? Well, I think from the highest level that on-call is just an extra part of your SRE or system administrator's work, that it isn't a real big part of their duties. It's always sometimes in the years past, at least for me, it was looked at as extra work. You know, you're just part of the on-call. This is a part of it. And it wasn't always taken very seriously, especially the impact of on-call on the individual and what you really can uh, lose from being in a really nasty incident. You can lose time. You can lose self-confidence because maybe something took too long, didn't go well. And you can lose a lot of patience and even uh, confidence from the company when these bad things happen. So one of the things that we talk about a lot is that on-call is not just for SRE. It's not just for ops. Although you you and I both have a background in ops and probably most of our career when we've been carrying Mm -hmm. a pager, so to speak, it's been in, in that ops role. Uh, Have you spoken to folks on your show that are not what you would consider the traditional on-call type roles? Yeah. And the first one that always comes to mind, and I think that this particular conversation was influential in me using this term a lot, and it's Andrew Clay Schaefer using the term the conscientious developer. It's what he was before the word DevOps became ever used by him once. He told me that he considered himself a conscientious developer and that when on-call incidents incurred, he would be part of that. And because of that, it grew him into a more capable software developer and grew into what eventually became DevOps. The idea that you can 
break down that wall and have people who write software understand the operational rules. I think one of the things, and, and, and you and I talked about this before, uh, mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time talking to organizations where they want to move to this idea more around full service ownership, right? Which is more than just putting devs on call, but putting mm-hmm. devs on call is part of that. And a lot of folks who are in a role of a software engineer are very resistant to going on call, which I can I can understand and I can appreciate. And I think a lot of what I've seen is this resistance comes from most software engineers have a perception of what being on call means and what that experience is like. And it's because of the horror stories that they've heard from their friends working in ops. And and I think when we think about what modern on call can be like, it's very different. Mm-hmm. And what, what are some of the things you think that have changed in what it means to be on call today here at the tail end of 2019 versus the last, you know, 15 or 20 years when you and I have, have been doing it as well? Automation, without a doubt. It's automation has made so much of the difference because there are ways to run through certain automated workflows and and follow through those and and how well a lot of that automation has been documented so that you can go through documentation to pinpoint what exactly is, is the problem as opposed to having to search like through a haystack and find that one needle. That's the problematic issue. So when I add automation, I add in all the tooling around automated deployments and management. So that's got to also talk about like the observability tools, the things that are watching what's going on through the automation process, that's watching through the deployment process, that's keeping an eye on everything. So I think, you know, you're automating everything, you're installing agents that do greater amounts of monitoring and you're having greater ability to spin up systems and replace things much faster. So I think automation would be just a huge difference. I think another piece is the way that culturally it's changed. And it's also why full service ownership really comes into play is Mm -hmm. it's not this model of you have a team that's on call, that's on call for everything that might be happening in your business. It's being a little more directed towards the domain experts for that particular service. And so I think that's the difference. If I'm a software engineer that has created this one service and I'm on call for that, that's a very different experience than that sysadmin who was on call for anything that went wrong with the entire application if it happened to happen overnight. So I think understanding that difference and also the more the more folks that go on call, the less amount of time you're, you spend on call as well, right? That's a big part too. As we distribute this, I think we see a big difference in that, right? Well, it's, distributed blast radius, wouldn't you say? Like, if you think about it, what you're doing by adding these additional people into your, your on-call processes, you've distributed what your blast radius potentially could be. If it's a distributed type of problem, if you have a number of different domain experts all on it at the same time, repairing an issue you're going to get a lot further along in repairing that issue than you have, you know, a small team working on one big system dealing with all this. So I think the way we've kind of spread out as people, you know, we've gone to things like microservices, but we've also spread out the amount of people who are actually, you know, looking at all those services and we've reduced their blast radius by spreading it out a bit more. I think one other thing that, I tell folks who've never been on call before that are leery about going on call is, so the beautiful thing about being part of an on-call rotation is you get to go off call because I have news for you. If you're not on call, you are 
people know how to get a hold of you. And the difference is they get a hold of you whenever they want, mm-hmm. as opposed to being able to be as part of a formal rota where it's like, no, you know what? I'm actually, I mean, it's very relieving to be able to know I'm not actually on call right now, which means I don't have to even worry about somebody calling and asking me about this. Otherwise you have that sort of Damocles of the pager hanging over your head, even though you're not carrying the pager. Trust me, your ops team, your folks who are, they know how to find you and they will because you're just the person they know as opposed to the person they should be contacting. Yeah. And that's why I, I kind of throw automation into there a little bit more because you've automated the tooling about rotating who's going to be on call and when, and it's less for you to think about in the process. Like I remember going through a manual process of having to modify config files and Nagios to monitor and, and, and then alert one particular person. So we're going back into times where, you know, the lack of automation around a lot of the things that we did made an on-call process just that much more difficult. Everything from like I said, like producing a new system, if you had to do that by scratch and by hand, it just would take sometimes hours of doing a Linux install, then installing all the associated. But once we got to the automated installation process, less pain. And so you can almost attribute the same kind of advancement with on-call with once we got out of the thing of really like the spreadsheet driven on-call rotation. And you went into tooling that was better managing when managers know people are on-call, that they have a view. That really made a huge difference, I think, for for me and my confidence around being on-call. Because at least like if I had incidents and they were like clicked off in the tool we were using, and in some cases, yeah, it was pager duty. You know, they would see in the reports, you know, how busy we were in times where, where things sucked. And, and I think that that's one of the big things that developers should, should understand has been a big problem around the idea of on-call is that people have always said, well, on-call sucks. And it's not really that idea I think that you should feel is, is why you may not want to be on on-call. You may not want to go on on-call because you just don't really want to have it interrupt your off time. And that's really what it comes down to. So you should take the job that fits whether or not you can do that. And there are a lot of roles out there that are very, very obvious that they want you to be on call. And it's a big part of your job. But you don't have to take those jobs. So I think that that's one big thing that we need to recognize. Like it's a choice to be on call. And so that labor needs to be treated as labor. It's a lot of work to be on call. I think I will agree with the second part of what you said, which is that you compensate for that. I think that the danger a little bit of the choose to, you know, that job is that is that that's what's happening that as we go through change, they're like, well, I didn't sign up for this. Right. And that's the problem. The problem is not with people taking a new job. The -hmm. problem with this change is when an organization is trying to actually distribute that work. Sure. And you have your existing people that say, well, I chose to be a software engineer because I didn't want to be on call because I care about my family. By the way, I really hate that. Oh, yeah. This is where I'm being opinionated because apparently only software engineers can have families, not. Oh, yeah. And I don't think it's it's about the family thing. What I think personally and the reason why I make the difference and I completely get your point. I think that some people literally just don't want to be bothered about it after they're out of the office. I've met these people and it has nothing to do with what their personal life is or who they're married or not married to or, or have children with or not. It just met people that didn't want to do work after hours. So I think the difference of that is it's not choose the role, choose the company. 
Yeah, yeah, and yeah. it needs to be a company that stops doing business after 5 p.m. Mm-hmm. It not needs to not be because I am a developer or I am this. If you want to have, again, to, as Jay said, those there are jobs that exist. And I'll tell you an interesting story. I was at a DevOps days and we were having a conversation around incident response because that's what I talk about. And uh, there, was, there was a fellow in there who ran systems for the Indianapolis Public Library. And he was like, you know what? We don't have after hours issues. And it was like, you're right. You sure don't because you're a library. And at the end of the day, Nothing happens till the morning, and that's fine. And I think that's another thing for folks to understand is not every organization is a 24-7 organization, but if you are, that's part of the job, right? Exactly. If the service that your company provides needs to be available at that, then everybody has a part in that. It's not, you know, so I think that's the nuance maybe around if you don't want to have to potentially be on call sometimes then you should get a job for a company that doesn't actually do business after hours. Yeah, they, that's kind of a better way of putting it. And, and, and essentially, you need to take the roles that fit you, your lifestyle, and how you want that to you know, interact with, with what you're going to go on and have part of your life when you're not working. So for me, I've never really had that issue. I've always worked in situations where after hours was fine. My personal family situation always was worked out, never really a big issue. Uh, And that's why I think it is for a lot of people who do this role and have families of different sizes or types or part. In the end, we're all just people and we all have basic requirements in order to accomplish basic things like eating, having some water, getting enough sleep and uh, spending time sometimes with people we like. And I think we should keep it in, in perspective. Like these are simple things. And, and if I'm able to get all that done and I've got some time to do the on-call and, and feel comfortable about myself, then I'm accomplishing all these basic things, then I'm glad. Uh, on-call shouldn't take away from any of the basics. So that's what I'm, I'm kind of getting at here is that you should be able to eat, you should be able to drink, you should get some sleep at some point. On-call should allow you to still do those things because one of the big advents of on-call that I've seen in the last few years and, and this is tremendous, I think, is the way you've been able to do escalations in a lot of uh, systems built in or how it's not just built into a system, but built into the rotation of I've been on call for four hours on this particular incident. It has not reached a point where I'm going to do anything. Let's move up the chain. And having that in a documented and understood fashion where it's not just you get the phone call eventually. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that's, that's, I think you nailed it, right? Is that this is, it's not about this binary, like I will not do on-call, but it's like, these are the requirements I have to be part of the on-call culture, right? Mm -hmm. How do we make this better? Which is, okay, what is the realistic nature of the rotation? And so those of you who are thinking about going into jobs where on-call is part of it, whether you've been doing this for your whole life, or maybe it's coming new, here's, here's a good question to ask, which is, how are responders rotated off of an incident? Because that's a big thing. Because here's what sucks about on-call. This is the nightmare that everybody thinks about is the, I got paged at one in the morning and I worked an incident till 6 a.m. and then I had to go to work. Okay, you know what? That super sucks. Or even worse is, you know, I got paged at 6 p.m. on Tuesday night and the incident ran until the next morning and I was up all night. I got news for y'all. That is not a good way to run an incident. Like you should be being rotated off because responders stop being effective after a couple hours. So you want to ask questions about that, not 
oh, will I be on call? But find out what it's about. Like, and ask questions about, like Jay said, what's the escalation? How does that work? What's the size of the rotation? That's more important than asking questions like, how often do you get paged, by the way? Because that doesn't necessarily, what you, what you care about is not how often it happens, but what's it like when it does, right? Yeah. Are you expected to work a 12-hour incident without any kind of, you know, break or things like that? Those are things to watch out for. I like to think back to an incident that I had a few years ago where it was many years ago where, you know, it was at the point where I got paged at like 3 a.m. I kept having the problem and it was like 730. I had to be out the door to get into the office, you know, by at least eight. And and eventually I had to like beg someone who was going to be on shift next. And see, that's the problem with not having solidified rotations with escalation points, that you may end up having to be that person that's begging for someone else to take over so that you can go get three hours of sleep and shower so you can come into the office. And I thought that this was the, a really awful way, but the kind of normal way that most of us, especially uh, houses that had a ton of customers, different customers, like in hosting back in early aughts, late nineties, it was just, you know, someone work on the problem. You get phone call when the problem gets really bad. And then you, you basically take ownership until it's fixed. And if it's not fixed, then you beg someone who you may know who can come on and fix it next. And that was just, this just was no way to run a business, but a lot of companies got away with it because they were able to explain away downtime. And nowadays it's very difficult to explain away downtime. So thinking back through a lot of the stories you've heard from doing so many episodes of your show, and you've heard all these great nightmares, what are some of the maybe patterns that come to mind or things that people could do to help avoid having an on-call nightmare? You know, it always comes down to tech debt. It's so amazing. But a lot of the stories that I've heard from people come from tech debt. Uh, they talk about issues that, you know, they, they, we're looking for for years or never thought about. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy of eventually by not handling some of your technical debt, whether it's someone with, you know, a database that's been hanging by a thread or somebody commits a, a command on a production database because they were configuring it to a test that they were trying to run. You know, these are all the things that people have, like by not having a specific environment to do development and Sometimes people would do things and it would end up going against production. These are like all those real scary things that I've heard people talking about. So not having documented information, not having documented processes and having it all eventually wind up as additional tech debt. Like it's amazing how much technical debt is actually lack of documentation. And I find that to be terrifying as well is that there are services that are up that have been on for years that no one's documented and it ends up being one of those scary parts where if it ever falls down nobody knows what to do what is your personal favorite on-call nightmare and that can either be one you've heard or one you've experienced but what's your favorite and whatever version of favorite <laughs> that is i guess like personally my favorite incident that I learned a lot from probably was uh, my situation with the dress when I worked at BuzzFeed. So if you don't know what the dress was, the dress was a situation where a woman 
emailed a coworker of mine and said, we can't figure out what color this dress is. And the person, Kate's uh, holderness, eventually shared it on BuzzFeed and Twitter. It went viral. And I had to work on the web servers associated with this poll that they were taking, that it was the same production CMS that we were using for like what the news people were using to do like important news stories. So we had this huge problem of nobody being able to write to the database while a whole group of people just wanted to vote about what color they thought a freaking dress was. And so that to me was amazing because I learned about traffic at a scale I had never seen before in any place I'd worked prior. And the nightmare of it all was it was in the same day we had a, an incident around llamas and a bunch of llamas got like loose in Arizona. So these things produce viral moments on the internet and viral moments can then have impact on your, your operations plan. And your ops plan might have been to, you know, you go after you fix a web server or two and everything goes back into prod. But when it's at a particular level of traffic that it's something you can't really plan for, it's amazing how that kind of incident gives you the ability to finally use those reps that you've, you've built over the years of like, I built up a certain set of skills of where I'm supposed to look when these problems happen. You know, to, to say the surface set of skills thing. I haven't seen those movies, but I thought that sounded cool there. Uh, but you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So one, uh, one, one last uh, nightmare question. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if anything comes to mind, but what's the funniest on-call story you've ever heard? Tim Yoakum from InfluxDB. Tim told a story about water cascading into the data center. It was pretty amazing. Uh, He was in the data center and there's water cascading from the ceiling onto the racks and there's water shooting out of floppy drives is what he's telling me. It's one of the most wild stories I've ever heard when it comes to a data center incident. I mean, we're not just talking about a a few computers getting wet. We are talking about a full-blown, you know, shower down on a couple of data center racks all at the same time. It, it was pretty wild. If you want to hear the rest of the story, check out uh, episode 30 with Tim Yoakum of Influx. I think it's really a, a great kind of, you can't predict because on call can almost produce a number of different issues. But this happened to be just a wet and wild one. All right. Fantastic. So Jay, there are two things that we ask every guest on this show. Cool. So the first one is what's one thing you wish you would have known sooner when it comes to running software in production? That the people who wrote it gave me all the information that I'm going to need when it goes wrong. So that's if I'm in an operations role, I want to know that I know how to get things taken care of uh, at any time without having to call or escalate. As long as you've documented it and you think I should be able to recover it, that's the most important thing. And secondly, is Mm -hmm. there anything about running software in production that you're glad it did not come up in the show? Yeah, like invalidating cash. Like invalidating <laughs> cash. Like asking me, like, what's the difficulties about invalidating cash across a global, like, CDN or something? Like, I've done that kind of stuff, and it sucks. Like, if you've got a, a particular object that's on a bunch of CDNs across the globe, and it's not, that's one of those things where you, you sometimes have to programmatically do it with some of the big vendors. It's a real big pain. I, I don't miss that stuff at all. 
So pro tip to my fellow page it to the limit hosts, do not invite Jay on our show about cash and validation. <laughs> not that we were planning on having one, but maybe we need to now. I don't know. I don't know if there's 30 minutes worth of stuff to talk about with that. It, other it really, than saying it sucks over and over and over again. You know, it's interesting <laughs> if you think about it on a really grand scale in the case of streaming video and now how many other systems rely on, on heavy caches. It's amazing to think how much goes into uh, supporting big caches for those big content delivery networks. So I want to hear someone talk about it one of these days. I, I got to find and talk about it. <laughs> just just have it not be you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to hear. I don't want to do it. Yeah. So great. Thanks, Jay. Uh, where can no our listeners uh, find your show, find you? Tell us how sure. we can learn more. You can find me uh, pretty easily on Twitter. It's On Call Nightmare, or just go to OnCallNightmares.com. And if you want to find me personally, uh, Jay Destro, J-A-Y-D-E-S-T-R-O, on Twitter. It's really easy to find me. It's an old IRC name, but my name's Jay Gordon. Uh, you can always find me at a lot of the different uh, Microsoft and Azure events like uh, Ignite and uh, Ignite the Tour. I'll be around a bunch of them all over the world this coming year and uh, looking forward to seeing people, especially at DevOps Days, New York City in 2020 on March 3rd and 4th. Fantastic. Thanks again, Jay. I appreciate it. This is Matt Stratton wishing you an uneventful day. That does it for another installment of Page It to the Limit. We'd like to thank our sponsor, PagerDuty, for making this podcast possible. Remember to subscribe to this podcast if you like what you've heard. You can find our show notes at pageittothelimit.com. And you can reach us on Twitter at pageittothelimit using the number two. That's pageittothelimit. Let us know what you think of the show. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember... Uneventful days are beautiful days.